So here this evening to uh, lead us on our uh, Lenten reflection is Father Richard Mullins, uh, who is a member of the Oratorian Community of St. Philip Nearing, Washington, D.C., at St. Thomas the Apostle Parish. He is a native of the Washington, D.C. area, having attended Catholic schools in the Diocese of Arlington. He graduated from Bishop O'Connell High School uh, in 1984. He went on to study history and political science at High Point University. After a year working as a grant writer for the American Red Cross, he went to seminary at Mount St. Mary's, where he received a master's degree in theology. He was ordained for the Diocese of Arlington in 1995, where he has served in a variety of pastoral and administrative assignments, including as Director of Multicultural Ministries, Defender of the Bond of the Diocesan Marriage Tribunal, Bishop's Delegate for Development and Administrator of St. Louis Parish in Alexandria. He currently serves as pastor of St. Thomas the Apostle Parish in Woodley Park, uh, where the Washington Oratory is based. Father is a fourth-degree Knight of Columbus, a Knight Commander in the Equestrian Order of the Holy Sepulchre of Jerusalem, a Magisterial Chaplain of the Order of Malta, a member of the Society of Colonial Wars, an amateur student of the Great Highland Bagpipes, and the proud master of a Black Lab mixed dog named Bella. Father, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And really the best part of all of that uh, is the dog. I have to tell you, I love my parish and my community and my priesthood, but let me tell you, if you don't have a dog or if you've never had a dog, you need to get one. It is such an honor uh, to be here with all of you tonight to unfold this topic of Lenten themes and St. Thomas More. So I'd like to begin with a prayer. We'll just start with the Lord's Prayer, if you don't mind. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So, thank you. I just wanted to uh, first explain the bibliography here uh, and recommend some things. Now, I understand that this is the Thomas More Society, and so probably you've all read a lot of things about St. Thomas More. Uh, my personal devotion comes from probably an early encounter with the famous movie, A Man for All Seasons, 1966 Oscar winner with, of course, the great Paul Schofield, who really put flesh on the bones of St. Thomas More for so many of us. I was ordained in the cathedral named after him uh, in the Diocese of Arlington. One of the first books that I had about St. Thomas More is just this little book by John Farrow, uh, The Story of St. Thomas More. And interestingly enough, uh, he was an Australian, was an Australian film director. Probably he would be most famous for being the father of actress Mia Farrow, whose real name is Maria Lourdes Farrow, and, uh, and several other kids. But uh, after sort of a misspent youth, he uh, came to the Catholic Church by studying Father Damien of Molokai and then became very enthusiastic about Thomas More. Very ironically, he died two years before the movie A Man for All Seasons came out, which I'm sure he would have loved. But this is, this is a nice uh, little book of about uh, less than 200 pages. This is a nice sort of like read on the metro type of book. Uh, Utopia by Sir Thomas More. A great book. Now, it, it's not my utopia, it's his utopia. And probably if you've read it, it may not be your utopia either. Uh, but uh, definitely has some wonderful points to it. Uh, this is probably one of the great gems about the life of St. Thomas More. It's called Born for Friendship. And uh, this was written by uh, uh, Jes Jesuit priest, Father uh, Bernard Bassett, SJ, uh, in 19. 65, and so a year before the movie came out. But this is a wonderful book that lays out a lot of the patterns of his life and gives us a great insight into his personality. 
Curiously enough, probably the definitive biography of Thomas More is the Peter Ackroyd Life of St. Thomas More. And uh, this is very comprehensive. Now, in the oratory, and one of the reasons that we all get along is we don't talk during dinner. We listen to readings. And so last year, we listened to the life of St. Thomas More. And so uh, it, it was... Uh, it was very eye-opening because as we discuss the life of St. Thomas More in Lent, you find out the things that you don't have to give up. One of those is sort of like a raucous sense of humor. You know, he had a very earthy sense of humor and things like that, but he definitely had a wonderful and engaging personality. Very often we see him as just something of a, of a pious soul, but really he was very much a loving father and husband, a great friend, and someone that all people could relate to. And uh, so if, if you haven't read it, I really uh, recommend it to you. Uh, the baseline for uh, this little discussion tonight is a book that he wrote in the Tower of London uh, in his last days. It's called The Sadness of Christ. And uh, this is just a little book of about 110, 15 pages. It, it's, it, it comes to us in the original English as Thomas More would have written it. And so it can present some challenges. For those who are used to the King James Bible or the Dowie Reams Bible, uh, it may not present as, as much of an obstacle. But it is an amazing book. And so... Uh, more on that to come. So, in 2000, for the Jubilee year, the cell of St. Thomas More was open to the public. Now, having tried to get into this cell on two previous occasions, I didn't think that this third trip would be the charm. But there I arrived with my mother in the Tower of London. And when you go in through the tourist gate, there was the old trader's gate, now there's the tourist gate. When you go in through the tourist gate, you find a nice table arrayed with all of the different tours and tickets and possibilities and times of things you can do in the Tower of London. You can see the crown jewels, and that's probably the biggest draw. You can tour the weaponry, you can tour the battlements, you can see the garden, you can see different aspects of life in the tower, and there my eyes alighted upon a little stack of tickets that said, tour of the cell of St. Thomas More at 2 p.m. Now, not even if you planned could something like this happen, and so it was just wonderful that we were able to go first into a little room where there is a piece of his hair shirt and a letter that he wrote, and then you're ushered into the cell itself. Now, you can go on YouTube, and you can go online, and you can see pictures of it, and I don't know if it is still accessible, but the beef eater who gave the tour told us that it had previously been used for storage, and they were opening it because of the Jubilee year. And I have to tell you, to be in that cell and to see the limited view of the sky and to know that there in the damp and in the dark, this great saint spent the moments that he himself would draw a parallel to as his Gethsemane was a profound and moving experience. It was sort, sort of hard to drown out the beef eater's description as he described the different aspects of life for St. Thomas More and to try and enter into the power of the location and the moment of the place in which this great man spent the last days of his life. 
I don't think that it was quite the hardship that most people who are sent to prison would endure. Because St. Thomas More was a man who delighted in solitude. I think probably the hardship was not being able to see his family and friends with any kind of regularity, but certainly as a man of monastic discipline, it would have been a place where he could have strengthened his relationship with the Lord. Now, a little background on Thomas More and the Tower of London. You may already know that his father had fallen out of favor with King Henry VII. And so, because of that, his father had been a resident of the Tower for a brief period of time. And so, Thomas More, as you know, was sent to the household of the Archbishop of Canterbury for his part of his childhood. He served as a page. Then he went to Oxford. And after his time in Oxford, he came to live near and really with a Carthusian monastery. Now, an Oxford college is not really along the lines of what we understand a college to be. A college then was almost like a form of a monastery. It was a place uh, where one was educated, but it was also a place of celibacy and a place of prayer and a place where clerics gathered. It was a place where prayer was an integral part of the day and the offices were kept. Lauds, matins, vespers, compline, all of that would have been part of life for him at Oxford. And so it was after that that he came to live near a Carthusian monastery and he participated very much in their life. And it was probably there that he became acquainted with things like the hair shirt, which was, for those of you who don't know, it's a very uncomfortable, fuzzy, woolen shirt uh, that you wear underneath your clothes. And so he would do that as one of his penances. He would also get up at very early times of the morning, 2 a.m., and pray with them. They had their matins very early, and he would get up and he would keep the cycle. And he did that for four years. And he came very close to joining them. Now, his good friend and confidant, Erasmus, who was an ex-claustrated monk, wrote, that he applied his whole mind to exercises of piety, looking and pondering on the priesthood in fast and prayers and similar austerities, in which matter he proved himself far more prudent than candidates who thrust themselves rashly into the arduous profession without any previous trial of their powers. The one thing that prevented him from giving himself to that kind of life was that he could not shake off the desire of the married state. And so he had this great desire to be a spiritual person. And so you know, he's really a prototype of a man of, of deep faith who incorporates prayer into his life, uh, but is not a cleric. Now, later on in his life, uh, when he was married to his second wife, his first wife, of course, having died, he built a little hermitage, or he had a little hermitage on his property. And uh, Father Bassett writes, at the dead of night, with his wife and family fast asleep around him, Moore began to fashion his own peculiar lay version of the contemplative life. As in a monastery, this was regular and methodical. For behind all the friendliness and joking, Moore was a very purposeful man. We may already have noted in his letter that he, how he treated his loving relationships with his family as part of his business. And so the order of the day began at his home in monastic hours, time for work. Time was apportioned for leisure 
and for meals. And so we don't have much about Moore's interior life, but we know that he liked to sneak off and pray at different times in this little hermitage that he built on the property. We, we know that he slept on boards and he had uh, sort of like a stone pillow that he would rest his head on. And so we also know because of that that his wife did not share that. And so really at a certain point in his life, he really almost reverted back to a celibate state. And so we can see how the situation in the Tower of London might not have been the type of hardship that it would have been for someone with a much softer pattern of living. Now, Erasmus makes the comment that Thomas More desired to be more of a chaste husband rather than an impure priest. And so he chose the, uh, the married state. But Erasmus's comment is really because so much of the church was corrupt at the time. You know, we look back to that time and we see so many of the problems that arose. Now, the papacy into which St. Thomas More was born was that of Sixtus IV. So he was the first of the Della Rovere dynasty, and he was really a pope involved in nepotism. Following that was uh, Innocent VIII, 1494 to 1492. He had two illegitimate children before becoming pope, had a lot of other problems. After that, 1492 to 1503 was Alexander VI Borgia, a man whose name is a byword for excess and horror, uh, and then onward and onward and onward, and you wouldn't really have a half-decent pope for a long time. And so, you know, there was a lot of problems, was a lot of corruption in the church at the highest levels. But at this time, despite the corruption at the highest levels, the pope and the cardinals, there was profound holiness percolating from the ground up. St. Thomas More and St. John Fisher were two of those. Interestingly enough, for the period of one summer, St. Ignatius Loyola and St. Thomas More may never have met, but they would have been in London at the same time. They lived in the same time as Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross, Francis Xavier, St. Philip Neri, St. Felix of Cantalice, who founded the Capuchin Order, and so many great saints in the church that really when holiness did not come from the top down, it certainly percolated from the ground up. And so in Belloc's essay on Thomas More, he says that you know, he was not entranced with the papacy, but he was a great man of faith who would never abandon Christ and his church. And so we find ourselves with him being arrested in the Tower of London. And so, as everyone knows, he refused to sign the oath, was taken to the Tower. He was great friends with Henry VIII, that friendship was over. He resigned his post after 33 months of Lord Chancellor of England. And he uses his time well as he always did. And let me tell you, he is patron saint of a lot of things. He's patron saint of lawyers. Uh, he's patron saint of people in difficult marriages. Um, he's patron saint of statesmen. But really, we see in him special patron of those who are uh, condemned to death, of those who are suffering. But I think we should also add patron saint in overcoming any kind of slothfulness because he never had a moment that he did not use well in one point or another. And he would always encourage people, if they had any free time, to take that time 
and use it for prayer. Now, he goes into the tower, and lesser men would probably be involved in a couple of different things, like some of the priests who were arrested before him trying to get out, and two did escape. Others trying to negotiate their way out or trying to bribe someone. You know, the good thing about being in a corrupt era is people, uh, you can take advantage of that corruption. You can bribe them a little bit. And that's probably why we have the same, that's probably why we have so many of his writings uh, from this time because they were able to be smuggled out of the tower. And so he sets out to use his time well. And in doing so, he left us a great gift that is a profound Lenten meditation. Now, St. Thomas More calls us to two great Lenten themes. The first is prayer, and the second is sacrifice. There are so many different talks that can, that can be given on his great joy, the, three, the great theological gift of joy. There are talks that can be given on his profound sense of humor and his great wit. This is not one of those talks. This is the depressing, sad Lenten talk about suffering and sacrifice and deepening your prayer. Now, this book is called uh, Born for Friendship because that's something that Erasmus said of his friend. They were lifelong friends. They, they corresponded. They encountered each other. Uh, Erasmus, as I mentioned, was an exclaustrated monk, had a lot in common with Thomas More. A lot of their correspondence still survives. But he said of him, he has an enormous capacity for friendship, and he did. But his greatest capacity for friendship was friendship with God. And that comes about only in one way, through prayer. Now, St. Philip Neri, because I'm an oratorian, you're going to have a few cameo appearances from St. Philip Neri and from Cardinal Newman. St. Philip Neri says, when the novice comes to you and asks for instructions on prayer, tell him to pray and meditate on the four last things. They are, of course, heaven, hell, death, and judgment. Ideal for a Lenten meditation, but certainly things that St. Thomas More spilt a lot of ink, or really it was charcoal, writing about. And so we see in this book, The Sadness of Christ, so much of that. Now, The Sadness of Christ is a meditation that begins after the Last Supper and ends with Christ being taken into custody. And as I mentioned, it, it, it's a slight read. It's, and, it's 110 pages. And while I'm happy to be here giving this talk, if you had a copy in front of you and you read it, I would deeply encourage that rather than listening to me talk about it. So he gives us incredible advice. Firstly, he talks about Christ after the Last Supper crossing the Kidron Valley. And then he tells us what Kidron means. Now remember, he was a great scholar of languages. You know, he was a great translator into Latin. Uh, he loved translating things into Greek. And so he would have had a knowledge and an understanding of the original biblical Greek. Um, some of you may know Sister Maria Kiley. She's a, she's a nun who, uh, who works at Catholic University, and uh, uh, she teaches a lot of classes. One of them, one of them is Greek, but she, she's around. She gives talks and things. But she's a fully habited Benedictine nun, full, full thing. And uh, somebody asked her the question, well, Sister, you know, you're a biblical scholar, so what translation do you read? And she says, oh, you know, I don't like the politics of it, so I just go right to the original Greek. Well, that's what St. Thomas More would have done. 
because he went back to the original Greek and to the original Hebrew, and so he understood some of these meanings. And so, meanings. And so the Kidron Valley means sadness or blackness. And so you cross the Kidron Valley through sadness into the Garden of Gethsemane, which means the Garden of Abundance, the Garden of Fullness. And so he draws it sort of like a metaphor uh, into, you know, from suffering into the kingdom of heaven. And then he parses it all out. And he talks a lot about prayer and the importance of prayer. Quote, Wherefore our Savior Jesus Christ, for as much as he perceived that there is nothing more profitable for a man than prayer, and therewith again considered that, partly by man's negligence, and partly by the malice of the devil, so wholesome a thing is almost everywhere taketh but little effect. Yea, and oftentimes too, doth great hurt and harm determine, while he was going toward his passion, both by the manner of his own prayer and his own example joined thereto, to set forth a necessary point, to be, as it were, the full conclusion of the rest of his doctrine. And so there is really nothing for us that is more powerful than prayer. That Yes, you know, we can study the doctrine of the church. We can study all these different things. We can do Lexio Divina. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is, is prayer. And he talks about how Christ goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, and there he prays. There he prays because he is afraid that Christ, who was true God, was also true man. And because he was true man, he sweat blood out of fear. And through that darkness and through that fear, we know that firstly we will come to a deeper relationship through Christ and through our suffering, but also he reminds us that an angel came to console Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. If we diligently do so, prayer, prayer that is, I little doubt but that like as an angel came unto him to comfort him as he was thus in prayer, so shall we likewise from his Holy Spirit receive, receive such comfort every one of us by our own good angel, as shall make us strong and able to endure those terrible storms through which we shall die up straightways to the kingdom of heaven. And so he shows us the importance of that time of prayer, but also in typical Thomas More fashion, he, encourage, he encourages us against sloth. And then he has a snippet from scripture here. Then he said thus to Peter, Sleepest thou, Simon? Couldst thou not endure to watch one hour with me? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. The spirit is prompt and ready, but the flesh is frail and weak. And then St. Thomas More, Oh, what force and efficacy is there in these few words of Christ. And in these gentle words of his Lord, how sharply doth he touch him. For in that he called him here by name of Simon, and so called him when he laid to his charge his sluggish sleeping. Thereby did he secretly signify that such feebleness and slothful sluggishness was full and fit for him that bear the name of Peter, which name Christ for his constant steadfastness. He which should have been in him had given long erst unto him. And it was a privy check unto him that he called him not by the name of Peter or Cephas, so sounded again to his reproach that he named him Simon. For in the Hebrew tongue in which Christ at the same time spake unto him, Simon is as much to say as hearing is obedient. But now when he contrary to Christ's admonition fell to sleeping, then did he neither hear Christ nor obey, obey, obey him neither. So if we don't pray, we can't hear Christ. If we're not awake, 
if we're not alert to what he has to say to us, then we cannot receive the message. We cannot have, we cannot have that conversation, excuse me. And so he's drawing a parallel there for his own life. He could very easily have fallen into a pity party. Here I am in the tower. I'm away from my friends. I've lost my job. But he didn't. He used that time for productivity and for prayer. You know, this book is called The Sadness of Christ, but really a better title for the modern times would be Dying Well for Dummies. Because in it, as he shows us Christ from these moments in the Garden of Gethsemane to his arrest, he unfolds for us a plan of preparation based on this prayer. Now, he does also talk about people who are traitors. Just as Judas appears and betrays Christ with a kiss, you know, and, and what did, you know, what did Jesus say to Judas? He said to him, friend, what have you come for? The only person in the Gospels that Jesus calls friend is Judas, who will betray him. And what kind of parallels this must have had for Thomas More in his own life being betrayed by so many of his friends. But again, remember, his greatest friend is the Lord, and him, Thomas, would never betray. And so as the scene unfolds, it's a powerful reminder. Now, he draws a comparison here, and this is one of his smaller forays into politics in this book, where he really kind of alludes to the bishops who betrayed the church. Now, remember, there was only one bishop who stayed faithful, St. John Fisher, Bishop of Rochester. Curiously enough, he was, of all the bishops, the one with the most intimate contact with King Henry VIII. He'd been his tutor. He'd been his tutor in childhood. So many of the great learning and the Renaissance style that Henry VIII adopted really came because of his association with this great Saint John Fisher. John Fisher rubbed off on him in the ways of the faith, but also in the ways of wisdom. But in this way, we see Henry's great weakness, and we see that as he would attack the church, one of the first people he would go after would be his former tutor, John Fisher, the Bishop of Rochester, because the bishop would not go along with Henry VIII's. And so, actually, when he condemned John Fisher to death, you know, John Fisher was so old that he had to be helped up to the gallows. He actually had a later execution date, but when he found out he was named a cardinal, then he moved up the execution date because Henry felt a little poked and prodded. And then, uh, because he'd been named uh, to the cardinalate, that he decreed that after his execution, he would be stripped bare. And so just a sign of Henry taking away anything earthly that this man had. But anyone who knows anything about the life of St. John Fisher, or indeed any martyr of the Catholic faith, they don't care about that stuff. They don't care about being hung naked in front of everyone. Because ultimately, naked they came into the world. That the only person whose opinion matters is not the judge of the king, but the judge who, will, who we will meet at the end of time. So every other bishop in England turned away from the church and toward the king. And it was a great scandal. And you know, there were, there were many people who still adhered faithfully to the church. There were great riots. There were all sorts of things going on where people uh, did not want to see this happen. Uh, and the king felt a lot of, a lot of uh, pushback, as we say in these days. But oddly enough, not from the bishops. Now, those who were theologians like to point out 
that John Fisher was the only theologian and every other bishop in England was a canon lawyer. I don't know if there are any canon lawyers here, but take heed. So he talks about the betrayal of Judas and how the apostles all scattered. And so he draws this comparison. And albeit the similitude of apostles thus sleeping may aptly, aptly be applied unto those bishops which lie carelessly and sleep full sound while virtue and true religion are like to run to ruin. Let me read that again. And albeit this similitude of apostles thus sleeping may aptly be applied unto those bishops who lie carelessly and sleep full sound while virtue and true religion are like to run to ruin. Oh, I hope we don't have any bishops like that today. Yet cannot it well be applied unto them all, at the least wise in every point, since some be there among them. More by a great many, the more pity, alas, it is, that I would wish there were, which would fall in a slumber, not for sorrow and heaviness as the apostles did, but like a sort of swine wallowing in the mire, lie fast slugging in the dead sleep of their mischievous blind affections as men all drowned and drunken with the pleasant must of the devil, the flesh, and the world. But of truth, though it were disposition in the apostles commendable enough to be sorrowful for their master's danger, yet that they were so overcome with sorrow that they did not else but sleep, this was without all a preadventure. What a fault indeed. And so he draws this comparison of you know, Peter, James, and John with Jesus in the, in, the, in the garden, and they fell asleep. And the bishops of England fell asleep. St. John Fisher famously said, the, the fortress has been betrayed by the ones who should have defended it. And so St. Thomas More saw this and he writes about it and he draws this comparison because it was a betrayal of Christ. And so Thomas More goes on to write, Fear ye not that those who can kill the body and after that have no more to do, but I will show you whom you ought to fear. Fear him that after he hath killed the body hath power beside to cast it into hell. So I say unto you, fear him. Now, let's go back to one of the most famous parts in the movie, A Man for All Seasons. You know, he's, he's, on, he's on trial in court, and here's Richard Rich, who once sort of looked up to him. Oh, Richard, what, what is that you're wearing? May I, may I see it? You know, oh, the red dragon. The red dragon. And then Cromwell, uh, you know, th th anything with Cromwell in England is never a good thing. And so here's Cromwell. And so Cromwell said to him, yes, he has been named attorney general for Wales. He says, uh, Richard, what would it promise, what would it, what would it profit a man if he, Gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his soul. But for Wales, sorry for those of you for wealth, wealth, Welsh ancestry, I'm sure that Wales is much greater now than it was then in the time of Thomas More. But he draws this comparison that this man had his price and he sold his soul for this office that really, in the end, meant nothing. And indeed, Richard Rich thought it was such a great job to have, but here we are, as so many hundreds of years later, and his name is sort of a, not really a laughing stock, but a sad name. People who know the story and who know, this, and know his name kind of hang their heads in sorrow at what could have been. He could have been a great saint. He could have been right there along Thomas More. He could have been one of the great defenders. He himself could have been a great martyr in the Tower of London or of Tyburn Hill. But instead, he sold his soul to be the Attorney General 
of Wales. And by the way, the other man in that court, courtroom, Thomas Cromwell, he would, at that point, be on nearly borrowed time. He himself would be put to death for treason in six years. And so he who sought to bolster his position also lost himself and his soul. And so let's go back to betrayal again and that idea because it's such a part of that moment in Gethsemane and such a part of Thomas More's life as he was betrayed by so many of his colleagues. Now, in another way, really, by his family. You know, it, we, see, uh, we see in the Ackroyd book and we see in, in uh, uh, Born for Friendship, we see in the movie, you know, he was a great man of family. Remember that all of them were happy to sign whatever the king wanted them to sign. Thomas More was the only holdout. And so that himself, that his children did not follow, that his, even his beloved Meg, his daughter, his wife, even they did not really fully grasp and fully understand his, his position. And so betrayal is a great part of his spirituality. But it's really such a part of everyday life that it, it serves for us, I think, a powerful meditation. For those who went to Mass today or who read the Gospel of the day, you know, how often must I forgive my neighbor? Seven times? And our Lord says, no, 70 times, seven times. That's a lot of betrayals. That's a lot of things to have to forgive. Now, you know, every, uh, this modality has the term Irish Alzheimer's. Maybe you've heard of it, Irish Alzheimer's. It can apply to any ethnicity. I'm sorry if you're Irish, especially sorry if you're an Irish canon lawyer, you've really suffered today. <laughs> but Irish Alzheimer's is when you uh, forget everything but the grudges. <laughs> but really, it can be applied to any ethnicity. And I can certainly apply it to my own in the Cuban-American community, that we forget everything but the grudges. But St. Thomas More talks about this betrayal. He also talks about forgiveness. And it must have been so hard in the dampness of that, of that cell. So he writes, But now if there be any man so far grown in wickedness, as he hideth not the truth, for any fear at all, but like Arius and his fellows, spreadeth about false doctrine, either for lucre or for devilish ambition. Such a one neither sleepeth with Peter, nor denieth Christ with Peter, but watcheth with wicked Judas, and with Judas pursueth Christ. In how perilous a case this person above all other especially standeth, and doth the disputatious and horrible end of Judas very well declare. And yet, since the merciful goodness of God is infinite and endless, no cause has this sort of sinners, neither to despair of God's mercy. Full many an occasion to cause him to amend gave God even unto Judas. So, remember, of course, that Peter betrayed Christ three times. Judas betrayed him in a different way, but still betrayed him, sold him out. But what was the difference? Peter had the courage to come back and to seek forgiveness. And sometimes, because of our human nature, it's so hard to find that courage to come back and to make amends, to make amends with God and to make amends with other people. You know, that's the power of the sacrament of confession. You know, really, if, if you do one thing in Lent, besides get a dog, if you do one thing in Lent, make sure you go to confession. In fact, make it a regular part of your life. Because God gives us so much love, so much forgiveness, so much mercy, we cannot even believe it or understand it or quantify it. But it is there and so powerful. And believe me, if, if, we, could, if we could see it, we would be 
overwhelmed with the beauty of that mercy. And so it's a reminder to us. And so Thomas More tells us, when Christ had thus three times awakened his sleepy apostles, incontinent thereupon began he not slightly and in sport, as idle jesters are commonly wont to do, but with an earnest and sharp biting scorn to rebuke them, and said unto thus, Sleep on now and take your rest. It is enough. Arise and pray that ye not fall into temptation. Lo, the hour draweth near that the Son of Man shall be delivered into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us go. Lo, he is not far off that shall betray me. And while he spake these words, came Judas, and so forth. And so the people of England were sitting idly by, the bishops were sitting idly by, as the faith was being taken from them, bit by bit, by King Henry VIII and his followers. And so many of them were sleepy. They weren't really paying attention. They were going along to, to get along. You remember that powerful moment where they're trying to convince Thomas More to sign it. Come along, Thomas, just sign it. Well, sign it for fellowship. Hey. And he says, you know, if you go to heaven for following your conscience and I go to hell for following mine, will you come along with me for fellowship? And so it stands for us as a reminder in our own lives to stick with the faith, even when it's a challenge even when sometimes the sand seems to shift beneath our feet, that we keep our eyes firmly fixed on the kingdom of heaven and on God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Thomas More kept his eyes firmly on the Trinity. Of these three persons, three things we must pray. For pardon that is already passed, grace to go through what we have in hand, and wisdom warily to foresee what is to come. And this we must do not carelessly, but devoutly and continually, from which kind of prayer, how far and wide we be, nowadays almost all the many of us. Both every man's own conscience could show him well enough. And I beseech God that the small fruit that every day less and less doth grow upon thereupon do not little and little openly at length declare it. And so even in those times when we have nothing left, when we feel betrayed, when we feel that things are not going our way because of physical suffering, because of some kind of hardship that is either man-made or biological, we turn toward the Lord and we keep our eyes firmly fixed on him. It's interesting that one of the last things that he wrote about was Christ being taken into custody and arrested. And after he writes this last part, that was when, firstly, they took away his writing implements. He only had charcoal and paper. They took away all that and then the next day he was taken to his execution. In fact, the work ends with this note from the editor. Sir Thomas More wrote no more of this work, for when he had written this far, he was in prison kept so straight that all his books and pen and ink and paper were taken from him, and soon after he was put to death. And so his last meditation was on this passage, the taking of Christ. Then came they to Jesus and laid hands upon him. And Pilate's soldiers and their captain and the Jews' servants took hold of Jesus. And when they had him fast, they bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was father-in-law to Caiaphas. And Caiaphas was he who had given counsel to the Jews that it was expedient one man should die for the people and all the priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees, and the ancients assembled together. How fitting 
because Thomas More would go out and he would see the mob. He would see the mob calling for his blood the way that Christ looked out and saw the mob from the hill of Calvary. And so St. Thomas More never got to write at this point in this book about the crucifixion, but he certainly lived it. He lived it out in those last moments of suffering. And so we see in him a man who knew how to live well and a man who knew how to die well. A man who took the time that he had and used it by writing a testament that others could profit by later on. And so 500 years later, we have this book, The Sadness of Christ. We have his other writings from the tower as well. We have other writers. He's one of these great saints, was very prolific. We have a lot of the things that he wrote. But certainly for us in the season of Lent, and any time when we're undergoing any kind of trial or suffering, we can look to his great example. He helps us across time. He helps us to contemplate the last things. To go back to the beginning, St. Philip Neri tells us that the novice of prayer needs to contemplate heaven, hell, death, and judgment. And we do, this, do that in this great season of Lent, but we have no greater role model in looking at that than St. Thomas More as he himself looks to Christ. And so I'd just like to uh, conclude with a prayer of St. Thomas More. I had to find a different prayer. I listened to the tape from last year and Father Justin Huber used the same prayer that I was gonna use, so I had to find a different prayer for variety. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Give me thy grace, good Lord, to set the world at naught, to set my mind fast upon thee, and not to hang upon the blast of men's mouths, to be content to be solitary, not to long for worldly company, little and little utterly to cast off the world, and to rid my mind of all the business thereof, not to long to hear of any worldly things, but that the hearing of worldly fantasies may be to me displeasant. Gladly to be thinking of God, piteously to call for his help, to lean unto the comfort of God, busily to labor to love him, to know my own vitality and wretchedness, to humble and meeken myself under the mighty hand of God, to bewail my sins past for the purging of them, patiently to suffer adversity, gladly to bear my purgatory here, to be joyful of tribulations, to walk the narrow way that leadeth to life, to bear the cross with Christ, to have the last things in remembrance, to have ever before mine eye my death, a death that is ever at hand, to make death no stranger to me, to foresee and consider the everlasting fire of hell, to pray for pardon before the judgment comes, to have continually in mind the passion that Christ suffered for me, for his benefits incessantly to give him thanks, to buy the time again that I before have lost, to abstain from vain confabulations, to eschew light foolishness, mirth and gladness, recreations not necessary to cut off of worldly substance, friends, liberty, life, and all that sets the loss at right not for the winning of Christ. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Sure. Uh, Father, do you want to answer a question or two? Sure. Now, I need to tell you, full <laughs> disclosure, I'm not a Thomas More scholar. Uh, this was uh, sort of a foray into a uh, study of his life. Uh, the Sadness of Christ, I had not read uh, since seminary in like 1990. Uh, so it was a wonderful opportunity to rediscover a lot of this. So I'll be happy to answer your questions, but if I fall short on the history of St. Thomas More 
for any obscure points of his philosophy. I apologize in advance. No. How long was he in the tower? I think two years. I'm not sure, but I think it was like two years. Uh, he he was put to death in uh, in in 1535, and uh, I th I think it was two years. What had happened? You know, part of the background of of Henry VIII, you know, being in the tower. Now that uh, you know Rome had been sacked in 1527. And Charles V was the nephew of Catherine of Aragon. And so they were all sort of breathing down the neck of the Pope, who had been already held prisoner once in, uh, in, in the uh, famous castle St. Angelo uh, from the last scene of Tosca. And, uh, and uh, you know, he was afraid to kind of sign the annulment. I mean, normally, really, this kind of thing they would have just signed off on, probably in other circumstances. But it was at that moment, it was because of that, that triggered the, the act when uh, the annulment wouldn't be granted. Henry wanted to marry Anne Boleyn, and uh, then uh, Thomas wouldn't sign and then got sent to the tower. Uh, so yes, yeah, so if, if anybody has a Wikipedia uh, answer for that, I'm, I'm happy to take it. I think one of the things that has always intrigued me about Moore is that, you know, we all know people in our lives who sort of stand against the crowd. Often they're cranks. Sometimes they're a little bit foolish, or they don't really, or they don't have a very sophisticated understanding, and they just stick to these positions. And Moore, of course, is kind of a cool guy. You know, he's extremely successful, mm -hmm. an incredibly powerful man. You know, institutionally connected and educated, and yet he maintains this. He develops this position that he then sticks with to the end. And I don't know, it's not necessarily a question, but maybe we could, you could talk about that, about how he is something, he serves as an example for people um, because he isn't just sort of an odd person. He's something everyone, I think, can, can sort of get near in a way and, and try to understand. Oh, I completely agree. He's definitely, uh, you know, he, he's described by Erasmus. I think I have some here, somewhere here in my notes, a description of him by... Uh, Erasmus, uh, physical description, personal description. Uh, he's not tall, they're not remarkably short. His limbs are formed in perfect symmetry. His complexion is white. Uh, his face, face rather than pale uh, uh, is by no means ruddy. A flat, faint flush of pink appears beneath the whiteness of his skin. His hair is dark brown or brownish black. The eyes are grayish blue with some spots. Uh, and then he talks about his countenance is in harmony with his character, being always expressive of an amiable and even an incipient laughter. And to speak a note check candidly, it is better framed for gladness than for uh, gravity or dignity, though without any approach to folly or buffoonery. So, I mean, he sounds like a great guy. And like you're saying, you know, in, in the movie, there's a wonderful line where uh, they're trying to say, well, you know, we'll get him. We'll say that he was bribed, and even the guy who was out to get him said, you can't say he was bribed. You know, there isn't a judge since Cato that was as squeaky clean as this guy. You know, nobody will, will believe that he was bribed. And, uh, but, it, but it is that that makes him sort of unique. And that, that's really what makes him a, a great saint, was his normality and, and everything that, that he that he gave up. I mean, thank God for the cranks. I mean, I love the cranks. Thank God for the cranks. And we need more cranks. Uh, Catherine of Siena, a great crank. You know, as a priest I know said, you know, she nagged the papacy back to Rome from Avignon. Uh, and, and so we need the cranks. But definitely people like St. Thomas More, uh, you know, stands up uh, above, head and shoulders above so many. Uh, because he was a normal family man who was devout. He was living out his vocation as a husband as, and a father in such a powerful and spiritual way, and he would not bend. He would not equivocate. He would not enter into gray areas. How many of us know politicians? I mean, put not your trust in princes, because how many of us know politicians would say, oh, you know, this guy's going to be great. He's going to be spectacular. Oh, and he's a Catholic, and he's this, and he's that. 
And then, you know, you hear them say something that's like a completely at odds with the faith. And you think, ah, this is the guy that falls short of Thomas More. This is the guy who cannot cross the line from statesman to saint. And that's why, that's why Moore is so much different. But that's why we also hold him up as such a great hero. And that's why certainly the legal profession needs him, politicians need him as an example. Thank you again, everybody, for coming. We have membership forms uh, here on your seats for the Thomas More Society of America. Uh, you can also uh, sign up on our website, thomasmoresocietyofamerica.org. Uh, not to be confused with that other Thomas More Society, of, um, society that uh, does the public interest legal work. They're in Chicago, Michigan, I think. Uh, we're the Thomas More Society of America here in D.C. Uh, so uh, go to our website, check out our stuff. All right. Thank you, Father. I think that's sure. a uh, great place to leave it.